It's good to see you here this morning. Uh, we're continuing on in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 26. If you uh, get your Bibles out, I'm getting mine ready here. Um, the Apostle Paul is facing one more examination by the Jews and the Roman authorities <clears throat> before he'll be transferred to face Caesar himself. We learned last week in chapter 25 that Governor Festus did what any, what any of us would do if we're faced with that unyielding, inflexible boot of the Roman Empire. He handed off the ball, and he passed the buck, and he passed it to King Agrippa. Agrippa, last of the Herodian dynasty. Now, Festus, removing himself from the limelight, can let the drama of Acts chapter 26 unfold. King Agrippa can take the heat. We find that he's a personal friend of the emperor Claudius, and even though he's of mixed um, uh, race with the Edomites and the Jewish ancestry, he's been pro-Jewish his entire political career. This sets the stage for King Agrippa to begin this day of inquisition. So we begin this morning with chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and he answered for himself. Now, Paul's hands were bound with chains. We'll see that later in verse 29. So when he stretches forth these, his hands, it's almost a sermon in itself. Here we see this devoted apostle bound in chains because of his faithfulness to Jesus. He says in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews. All the things that he's been accused of. Now, he, he's been arrested now in arrest for over two years. He's been a political football used by the Romans and threatened by the Jews, and yet he stands before this crowd and he's a happy man. Well, obviously, Paul's joy doesn't come from his circumstances, but comes from Jesus. So he continues in verse 3, especially, he says, because you, Agrippa, are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. Agrippa's awareness of the Jewish uh, nation allows Paul to begin with his personal Jewish background, one that actually includes these Jewish accusers. He says, Yes, sir. So, as Paul continues, verse 4, he says, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. So many of these Jews, these common citizens and leaders alike, they're his contemporaries. 
Perhaps several of them were fellow students under Gamaliel, the noted teacher of the Pharisees. Paul is telling Agrippa, these men know, they know me, and in verse 5, they knew me from the first. If they were willing to testify that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. He's saying, before my conversion to the way, Paul says, I was among them, a leading rabbi. They knew me from the very beginning. They're just not willing to tell the truth, to testify what they know of. No one was stricter than Rabbi Saul. They know how much, how much I revered the scriptures, the feasts, the law, and even the temple. You see, Paul thinks that Agrippa knows enough Jewish dogma and history, yet he's held at arm's length by these pompous, pretentious accusers that he might listen with an open mind. So Paul comes right to the point in verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Hope and promise. That's the whole accusation in a nutshell. So what is this hope and this promise that Paul is referring to? To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. So Paul declares that it's on account of this Jewish hope that he's now on trial. The hope that was first given to Adam and Eve on the very day that they needed it. The hope given to Father Abraham when God uh, when he obeyed God by faith and he traveled seeking a promised land. Now Adam and Eve heard the promise of this hope when God said it actually to the serpent in the garden. I've got the verse up here, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, but you, uh, you shall bruise his heel. You see, when the serpent bruised the heel of Jesus, it wasn't fatal. But the seed of the woman will bruise his head, and it will be an eternal fatal death. Now, Abraham received this hope in God's promise that one of his descendants would bring blessing to all nations. We find this in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And now in verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Paul hoped for nothing more than what every Jew before him had hoped, for salvation, for God's blessing. Paul wanted to be made right with God and to live forever. 
And that's every man's hope. Paul's not really on trial for opposing Judaism, but rather for adhering to the hopes of the Holy Scriptures. It's his opponents, by their rejecting the promised Messiah, the offspring of Eve, the descendant of Abraham, they're the ones that are forsaken, forsaking their Jewish faith. Paul is claiming that he was standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, his and theirs. Paul is guilty of hoping and believing in the promise which God gave to the twelve tribes of Israel, of which these people that are accusing him, they are still looking for as they go about their religious rituals of worship. Verse 8. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Well, now he comes right to that hope, the resurrection, the raising of the dead, an eternity of the soul. J.B. Phillips, uh, he wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament that many of us really enjoy. He was right saying that sometimes our God is too small. This is our first fill in the blanks. If we get hung up on the problems and the challenges before us, it's because we fail to realize the size, the strength, and especially the heart of our Father. Our God made billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy and millions of galaxies the size of the Milky Way in the universe. What Paul has been preaching to anyone who would listen from Jerusalem to Athens is the truth of God's great power, including and especially God's ability to raise mankind from the dead. And that God has validated this truth, the truth of the resurrection, by raising Jesus from the dead. Paul's reminding King Agrippa that the resurrection from the dead is a fundamental Jewish belief even from the very beginning. Abraham, the father of the Jews, believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead as he held that sacrificial knife at the altar atop Mount Moriah. We see in Hebrews chapter 11 an insight into what was going on in that uh, event with Abraham. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be blessed. Abraham reasoned, if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. The Old Testament prophets proclaimed their belief in the resurrection. We, we hear Job asking the question in chapter 14, If a man dies, will he live again? Then he answers it in chapter 19. He declares with the utmost confidence, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet my flesh, from my flesh, I shall see God. 
God. Job doesn't know how God is going to do it, but he believes in his heart that somehow God will raise him from the dead. You see, because Job believed that God was right, that he was righteous in all that he did. Through it all, Job maintained this belief that God is right. Even though it seems to Job and his wife and his friends that he's being allowed to suffer unjustly. But the only way for God to be right that makes sense to Job is that there is a resurrection, a heaven to reward those who have suffered, and a hell for those who have victimized others. It's with this point that Paul declares later to the Corinthians the absolute importance of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ is not raised, we've been deluded and we're about the most miserable people in this world today. But we're not, are we? We're rejoicing because we have hope in a better life to come. That things will be made right. That suffering will be no more. That tears will cease to flow. On the other hand, if heaven isn't real and the atheist is right, that there is no tomorrow and there is no hope, then Paul will even say in chapter 15, live for today for any and all pleasures it can provide. He says in 1 Corinthians 15:32, and what value was there in fighting wild beasts? That is referring to the the people in, in Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead, and if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Devote this life to pleasure, comfort, and high living. But the truth of the resurrection changes all that. The resurrection is basic Old Testament theology 101. Isaiah echoes the hope of the resurrection. He says in chapter 26, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. It's for the same kind of hope given to Abraham, a hope that includes the resurrection of the dead, that Paul is now being accused. Paul's crime for which he's being attacked by the Jews, ironically, is for being too Jewish, for believing too much in the Old Testament scriptures. Paul goes on in verse 9 to explain he's always been a man of zeal. Indeed, he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to or against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. See, Paul says, I can relate to these men. I too thought these Jesus followers that it was a hoax, that it was blasphemy. Verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem, 
And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was a voting member of the court, he's saying. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He says, I chased them out of the country and then I hunted them down wherever I could find them. But then Paul says, something happened. It changed everything. Our second point in the bulletin. In verses 12 through 18, Paul does something that each and every one of us can do, should do. He gives his personal testimony. Well, I was having brunch this last September 10th. I was sitting around the table with a group of people I dearly love when I was cornered. Across from me sat on, uh, came from this friend of mine a question, almost an accusation. He said to me, okay, Tally, how can you be so sure that there is a God who cares about you, a God that even exists? Then next to him at the table, there are so many religions, how can you dare say that what you believe is the only truth? What makes Jesus so different, so special? Well, now, I'm sitting at this table thinking, hey, I didn't call this meeting for me to get grilled. Yesterday was my birthday, and I just wanted a free brunch from my friends. But it was my fault. In our conversation, innocently, honest, unintentionally, I made mention of heaven. That I was at peace that one of our mutual friends was heading for heaven. And as I said that, I looked up and across from me, there was this challenging look. And I, oh, I, I just went, oh, I'm, I, I didn't say that to antagonize you. See, I knew these people I was with, I knew that they weren't believers. But for some reason, the mention of heaven was all it took. And the discussion began. Now, these are my friends. We truly care about each other. Now, I believe, unlike these Jewish inquisitors, including King Agrippa and Festus, that they really wanted to know, even though they didn't think my answers would change their minds. So what would you do? What have you done in situations like this? Well, what does the Lord want you to do? Well, Peter tells us. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Well, I, I admit it. What I wanted to do was give the three classic arguments for God. 
you know, the creation cosmological argument, or the design teleological argument, or even the moral argument. No. Somewhat like Paul does in verses 12 through 18, I gave my testimony. Now, I admit, I was caught off guard. And as everyone looked at me, I searched my mind and my heart, and I thought, why does faith in Jesus make sense to me? And one word flooded my mind as I sat there. One word, the word forgiveness. These folks have been personally affected by my divorce of 30 years ago. My inability to live up to my own beliefs, the spiritual principles I had taught others and some of them to live by for 20 years as they were in my youth group. As I thought about what makes so much sense to me, it was my personal experience with Jesus that began with the forgiveness God's grace provides when I acknowledge my sin and I repent. You see, only Jesus can provide forgiveness of sin. The Pharisees said, who are you to forgive this man? Only God forgives sin. Well, because of my own sin, when I, from when I first understood that sin separates me from a living God, remember when you were a child and you knew what you were doing was wrong, and so you tried to find a way to make it right? Me and my buddies, every time we swear, we had to hit the other guy on the shoulder. Now, there's judgment for you. Then as we became self-sufficient, it cost each one of us a quarter. But you know, I began to recognize that the sin in my life I couldn't atone for, that I couldn't compensate for. And my sin from my childhood began digging a hole deeper and deeper. I looked at my agnostic friend who couldn't see why all world religions weren't the same, including Christianity, and I said to her, all other religions look at me in this pit, the hole that I've dug, the pit I dug for myself when I sin against God and against others. And they say, if you can get out of that pit, I can show you how to live. But Jesus came down into the pit with me. His death paid the penalty for my sins. On the cross, he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried out, Father, forgive them. You see, Jesus lifted me out of the pit, forgiven. That's my word. And if you're here this morning without Jesus, He's just a prayer away because Jesus died for you too. As God the Son, His death counted for us all.
Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. But I love the next part, don't you? But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Even this morning, you can open your heart to Jesus. Even as I'm talking and receive His promise of eternal life. Saying, Lord Jesus, I accept your gift of life for me. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. Well, Paul tells us when he said that prayer, as he gives us his testimony, verse 12, While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priest, at midday, O Lord, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language. Now I think Paul is making a subtle point here. The risen Lord spoke to me and he spoke in Hebrew. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. He wasn't against Judaism. He was its fulfillment. So the voice of Jesus finishes verse 14 for Paul. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Well, now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Dr. Walverd, one of my favorite seminary professors, he says, Jesus is referring to the stick farmers use to prod their cattle. Jesus was comparing Paul to a stubborn animal that would not obey. So Walverd asks, what goads was God using to bring Paul to Christ? Well, first of all, the witness of Stephen had prodded Saul. He never forgot it. Remember, Paul spoke with regret in chapter 22. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Number two, the faithfulness of the saints as he was forcing them to recant. Their faithfulness had shocked his conscience and touched Paul's heart. And number three, surely the Old Testament scriptures that he had memorized as a Pharisee, as a rabbi, spoke to his heart with new conviction. You see, even before this divine encounter on the road to Damascus, God had been prodding, goading, and Saul had been bucking and resisting. God shines the light of his truth on all of our sin. He exposes our need for a Savior. He wrestles with us over our stubbornness. On the road to Damascus, God finally pins Saul to the mat. It's a takedown. God humbles Rabbi Saul with his glory and then his grace. But he's been working on Saul's heart for years. Verse 15, So I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. One of my favorite pastors, Sandy Adams, says it this way, God knocks us down, then he lifts us up. Jesus turns Saul's into Paul's, the word Saul means requested one. <clears throat> the name Paul 
means little. Rabbi Saul thought he was big stuff, a religious celebrity, the man in demand. But the Apostle Paul learned he was nothing but a little guy, a simple servant employed and empowered by a big God. Finishing verse 16. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will yet reveal to you. You see, Paul is to be a minister, a servant. He's to be a witness, not a judge, jury, and executioner, as he had been for the high priest. Number three in our bulletin. Each of us have been called to be a minister and a witness. Each of us should be willing to fulfill those same purposes. We have been called to share our story. So Jesus, his voice continues in verse 17. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. I want you to notice in verse 18 coming up that Paul interjects into his testimony a beautiful description of salvation. Jesus is sending Paul to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Most of us don't doubt the power of God, but we doubt his willingness to intervene in our situations personally, to really show up for me. How do we know God cares about us? The answer lies in the cross. Paul recognizes the need to turn from darkness, the need to repent. He also sees in this verse the and emphasizes the importance of forgiveness. You see, repentance and forgiveness are essential to salvation, to eternal life. But all of us, Jesus says in verse 18, have been blinded to God's truth. Jesus analyzes this thought in verse 18. They're under the power of Satan. Satan is the God of this world. Behind the darkness is the great enemy of mankind who is twisting and distorting the thinking of men, clouding their eyes and spreading treacherous delusions. All the commonly accepted philosophies of our day reject the basic satanic lie. Here's one of them. We are capable and adequate and independent, we are able to run our own affairs. Here's another one. We are told that material things can satisfy you, that if you get enough money, enough things, that you'll be happy. All these lies permeate our society. That's the power of Satan. Saul the Pharisee was confronted by the resurrected Jesus He was literally, physically blinded temporarily so his spiritual eyes could be opened. He tells Agrippa what Jesus commanded him to do. 
Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. Paul was knocked down and humbled as an example to others. Now all men, Jews and Romans, need to repent, need to turn to God. You see, this message hasn't changed since the last of the Old Testament prophets shouted it out. That would be John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The other Old Testament prophets preached repentance. Jeremiah said, Surely after my turning I repented. And after I was instructed, I struck myself in the thigh. I was ashamed, yes, even humiliated, because I bore the reproach of my youth. Ezekiel tells us about repentance when he tells us about God's love for mankind. What a wonderful verse. Do I have, do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God? and not that he should turn or repent from his ways and live. Paul has proclaimed his innocence regarding the accusations made against him. Verse 21, For these reasons the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. All the truth Paul preached had been foretold in the Old Testament. Paul's accusers just needed to read their Bible. But as the mention of the Gentiles... At that mention, Festus jumps in and interrupts. Now, as he thus had made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You've been in school way too long, he's saying. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. You see, Festus the skeptic, This was more than his Roman materialism could stand. So he said, Paul, you're mad. You're crazy. Crazy, talking about raising the dead, a corpse coming back to life. And on top of all that, what's it got to do with us Gentiles? Now you're talking about some world Messiah for Jews and Gentiles. Festus was sure that Paul was crazy. Well, are you crazy? I I like the story uh, Sandy Adams told to determine who is or who isn't crazy. So I'll let you decide where you fit. He said, once an inspector was reviewing procedures at the state insane asylum, he asked how the hospital evaluated if a person should be institutionalized. The director of the asylum took him to a bathroom and pointed to the tub. He explained, we fill the 
We fill up this tub and we show the person a teaspoon, a teacup, and a bucket. And we ask him or her to empty the tub. Well, the state inspector said, oh, and if they don't ask for the bucket, you admit them, right? He says, no, if the person doesn't pull the plug, we admit him. (laughs) Do you want the first or second floor, he asked this guy. (laughs) But Paul answered, most excellent Festus, I'm not crazy. I'm telling you the cold, sober truth. The dead living again is what Christianity is all about. That's precisely the declaration at the heart of my faith in Jesus, that Christ, Messiah, has solved the problem of death for all mankind. It seems absolutely incredible, perhaps, but it's true. God has broken through death, and in Jesus, He's made life available to all men as He intended life to be from the very beginning. Then Paul points directly at Agrippa. For the the king before whom I also speak freely, he knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. You see, Jesus preached and taught, lived and died right out in the open before everyone. He's saying, and I know that the king knows the story. God invaded time and space and on a hill just outside Jerusalem, in full view of the entire world, God's only son was brutally nailed to a Roman cross. King Agrippa, he says, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa and Bernice were Hebrews. They had been alive living in the land 27 years earlier when a carpenter from Nazareth preached in the streets and worked miracles. Paul is saying, you know the historical facts of Jesus' life, and you believe the prophets, so put two and two together. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. At this point, this enslaved king, mastered by his own lusts and desires for pleasure, living with his own sister, is faced right into the issue. You can just see him squirming up there on the throne. Verse 29, Paul says, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might both almost and altogether be such as I am, except for these chains. It's hardly the answer of a prisoner, is it? As Paul stands here, he's saying, I wish that you could be as I am. And I can be here saying, not because of me, but because of Jesus, I wish all of you could be as I am, Forgiven, headed for heaven. Paul is saying our fifth thought in the bulletin, I wish you had the peace, the liberty, the power, the joy, and the gladness of my heart and life. That's the greatness of the gospel. 
It can rise above every and any circumstance. The gospel can fill the heart with joy so that a man in chains, bound and a prisoner, can stand before a king and say, even though you're a king and you have wealth, more wealth than you can, per- than you can spend, I would gladly recommend to you that you become like I am. That's how great the glorious liberty from sin that the gospel is. When he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. I'm not sure what they were doing. Were they running for help? And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. He's making a mistake. Well, King Agrippa, you're the one making the mistake. You're the one that could have been set free. And how about each of us? Anyone here this morning that hasn't yet put your faith in Jesus? Paul has been saying throughout chapter 26 that for over 2,000 years God has been promising the hope of conquered sin and death. Uh, Worship team, come on up. Jesus the Savior came just as God promised. And there's one other promise that Jesus wants to keep with you this morning. It's the promise of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, hears the voice of the Spirit whispering in your ear, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you came to earth, that you lowered yourself from heaven. You became the God-man living among us, facing all that we face, and dying on that cross and paying that penalty that each of us is unable to atone for. Lord, thank you for your death on the cross. Thank you, God, for that unbounded love and grace that you've given us. We pray, Lord, that you would just speak to our hearts, draw us close to you, those of us who just need to admit, confess. Your word says if we confess, you are faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, we come to you. Those that don't know you, may they hear your voice, hear the knock and open the door and receive your promise of fellowship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
stand with me and close with this worship song. Good to have you here this morning. We got Doug over here and Coach. I'll uh, be a lady in the library. We'd love to have you come up and pray with us. If you've asked Jesus to be your Savior this morning, come up and pray with us and let us rejoice with you. If you've recognized the power of God's forgiveness in a new way this morning, come and share with us. God bless you. Have a great day.